strategy, design, marketing, UX, digital, development. This is Agencies That Build. This show is dedicated to leaders and teams that design and deploy in the digital world. My name is Jesse, and I'm a marketer and an agency owner. And I'm Varun. I'm not a marketer, but a coder and an agency partner. This show is sponsored by Together We Ship. On a mission to help agencies grow. All right, rock on. Here we are, Varun, my friend. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm great. What a lovely day. We haven't talked about weather in a long time. Finally, the day has opened up. And I'm so happy that this whole week we have no rain, finally. Yeah, except that it's in the 90s. Well, I can take the 90 if there is no rain. <laughs> I don't mind that, you know, rain was, you know, just making all the plants disrupt. So I don't know. I feel I, I, I was, it's interesting. I was walking the neighborhood yesterday and I felt like it was like more green than I've seen it in a long time in July. But yeah. it's neither here nor there. Let's, yeah. um, I'm excited to talk to our next guest. Are you ready? Today's guest. All right. This is an an epic introduction. So she orchestrates a symphony of digital product design and engineering with a passion for crafting better apps, websites, and experiences. Her 25 years of expertise lies in uncovering product insights. Her studio boosts an impressive clientele ranging from industry giants like Visa, Adobe, and Nike. Her journey through roles as creative director, UI, UX designer, and content strategist has shaped her into a versatile powerhouse of finesse. Armed with specialties spanning early research, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, prototyping, team management, we'll also talk about, and client relations, she tackles it with precision and skill. Please welcome today's guest founder and product design lead of Flower Press Creative Studios, Kirsta English. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. How's the weather where you are? <laughs> well, it's a little cloudy today in Seattle and we got some late summer rain. I understand it's a tropical storm from Hawaii. So that's a little bit different than what we have here, which is like 90 and hot and dry. <laughs> so, all right, let's dive into our myth busting question. What is some sort of uh, myth, bogus strategy or misconception that you'd like to set the record straight on? I think um, one myth-busting question I want to set the record straight on is uh, getting paid for your sales process. I think a lot of people assume that when a new client comes to them, they need to take requirements and make a gut-level estimate um, to get the work. And actually, I found that is a great opportunity to to sell best practices and establish a client relationship that has a meaningful start. So we go through a process called discovery. Um, Discovery is essentially a planning phase where you undertake stakeholder interviews, you map out a system design, you put together a prototype and test it with end users to see if the product direction is valid. And that is a paid phase of work. It's an early engagement that allows us to plan out a system and then price it based on real information. And so the discovery phase is a great way to to take a responsible approach to system design and set a project up for success. Um, I like the way you said, get paid for your sales process, you know? Um, So 
how how do you tell discovery? Like, how do you, you know, um, convince the client that you need to pay us to help you understand what you need to define the scope to do, you know, basically uh, to, to, to build the product that you want, but first start from having us ask you the questions so that we can uh, list down these other things that you want, which is actually the client's job. But it sounds like clients don't do that. They would pay you to have them, you know, basically help you put that together. How, how do you sell that? Like what, what's the process behind? I mean, you laid out some yeah. things that you would give them, but even before that, when do you are having the conversations with the client? What is sure. that that you do? So we're a digital product design studio. Um, we handle work from beginning to end, design, branding, visual design, build, development, launch, support. So the whole thing, right? But we don't just build something that people say they want. Like, I think I want this. Well, how do you know? How do you know that it's worth investing hundreds of thousands of dollars in a product that you haven't tested? I mean, people come to us and they, they don't have a product design background. They don't know how to conduct a user interview. They don't know how to put together like a system design that has an entire workflow diagram that maps data in and out of the system. They just know, I want a service that'll perform function X, whether it's an app or a website or a web app or a combination of all those things. They have some business objective or problem they're trying to solve and they need a digital system to do it, but they don't normally have a background in software or research or, you know what I mean? So we basically pitch it as, it's a good way to get to know us. It's a good way to get to know what exactly you're undertaking. It's a low risk investment because it's time boxed and it's, you know, it's a relatively modest budget compared to the entire build. And you get a chance to work with us, understand our process, understand how we collaborate with you. And you can walk away with the plans and use them anywhere. You own it. It's a work for hire. So this is really just the beginning of our development cycle we'd have to go through anyways. We can't actually build this product without this work. So we're kind of breaking off the first X percent of the build cycle into its own phase and then planning it out with more precision so we can give you a valid estimate and a valid timeline. And does that mean it's always 100% correct? No, <laughs> but it's gonna be a lot closer. And you'd be surprised how many people tell me that they'll come to an agency and they'll just give them a price based on the specifications they describe and how refreshing it is to hear someone that's gonna help them validate those specifications. How how much do you charge? Like what well, you said, it's a small percentage of the big build. So how do you decide the price for it? Is it a fixed cost discovery, or it depends on the you know how how do you determine you know because the client would come to you with a problem. Sometimes mm -hmm. it could be just an idea. Sometimes it could be a one page description. Sometimes it could be an RFP. But in all these cases, I'm sure there has to be the process that it sounds like you go through in which they need to be more well-defined than what they have provided you. So how do you decide like this is what it should cost? So we work hourly because hourly like acknowledges the 
the reality of software, which is that things change and it's impossible to know all the requirements up front, right? So I, I estimate everything within hours range um, and we do it based on our years of experience and roughly how complex a system design looks to be. Um, I, I do my best to outline what I believe to be the, the features when we start um, and then how many user interviews I'm going to go through, how many stakeholder interviews I'm going to go through, how many people, people are involved in decision making. And so I do an hours range. I mean, it could be anywhere from, let's say, 100 to 300 hours to go through this process. Um, and sometimes we'll do an initial discovery, and then we find that we need to dive deeper on something. And I'll do a second discovery estimate before I even do like the full project estimate. Um, people are sold on the process once they get involved in it because it's very exciting to hear real feedback based on a prototype to see it in action, to interact with it. Um, they start to get very excited and you know they wanna know more. And then they realize that like having this upfront research also helps with fundraising. So investors are very excited to see that someone's gone through this process early on. It shows planning, it shows thought, it shows responsibility. And then you know we're able to validate ideas before we spend all the money to build out the system. I mean, it's a fraction of the cost when you think about it. Makes sense. Who, who does that in your team? Is it like you or you have team who is, because I'm assuming that requires some skills as well to talk and navigate that discussion with the client to help them mm -hmm. understand the need for this. That's correct. Um, I do the sales for the most part on my team, but I do have, um, I do have UX designers and product designers that work with me to map out system designs. And so, User interviews are generally like a two a two man process, right? So I'll have a a call not not dissimilar to what we're on now, where we we talk face to face about a problem. It is recorded, so I don't have to take meeting notes, and it'll be me and another UX designer talking about the project, um, asking questions. If it's a stakeholder interview, they generally know their audience very well, so they just talk through all the challenges, what's working, what's not working. Some of these are businesses who have launched a product and had some type of failure. Some of these are businesses that haven't even started yet and they just have an idea. So we'll talk through either a real world scenario or their understanding of a real world scenario so we can download as much information as possible to our, our brains before we get going on the design plan. And then we map out a design plan, we talk about it, we work through it, and then you know, at some point we get a prototype together that we feel good about and we'll get that in front of potential customers. And so Let's say I'm working on a two-sided marketplace. Um, I'd want to have representatives of each type of user, three to five people, each type of user we generally want to talk to, because you know what, that pulls out design patterns, issues, boulders in the road. It's not going to, it's not going to check every micro interaction. It's not going to check like very deep features. This is high level planning we're talking about, you know, enough to give a confident development estimate. With um, attracting clients, I know we talked a little bit in the prep call about how you guys market to, I think you said people, not companies, which I really like that approach. I'd love to hear a little bit mm -hmm. more, you know, because one of the things, especially with a lot of the agencies that we've chatted with, there's a little bit of a roller coaster happening in the market right now with people and work and coming and going. Love to hear a little bit about your process and I know because you guys have worked with all kinds of different, and you just listed a bunch, all kinds of different shapes and sizes from companies. How, 
marketing to people, is there something that you do differently with that? Like what's your, talk us through that a little bit. So reputation builds, right? So I've been working in the industry, like you said, for 25 years. I started, um, I started this business on the side of my full-time job. I worked at Nike. Um, I built up relationships. I worked for other in-house design roles um, over the course of many years. I spent time in Silicon Valley. With each new job, I collected new contacts. I built up my network. Um, I was freelancing on the side of my full-time job for five years, so doing all of the work to build up a personal network and a reputation. Um, I went off on my own in 2006 and built up my team from there. And I think reputation has a lot to do with it. People just trusting your ability to see a project through and like deliver reliable results. Um, over the years, I've had a personal mission to take on projects that help people. So I've done a lot of work in healthcare, education, um, personal development, mental health, um, you know, athletics, uh, tracking, you know, systems, just various, various tools that allow people to improve themselves. And so I think within the community of people who are trying to make a difference, um, there's also a network of referrals that happens. Um, you know, people find past projects on Clutch or on various review websites, and they'll see similarities in those verticals. So I think the main thing is um, building a network, staying in touch, um, continuing to reach out and let people know you're around, um, launching projects, you know, showing successful project launches is a good way to make sure you have repeat business. And then I think like continuing to have relationships with customers because the easiest thing to sell is to an existing customer. So a new phase of work and enhancement, you know, letting them know that some software is getting out of date might negatively impact their service. Um, those are all ways that you can upsell additional work. And I find that upselling work is the easiest way to get new work because if you identify needs and offer to solve those needs, like identify problems and also offer to fix those problems, that's one of the best ways to make sure you have ongoing work. Existing customers are easiest to sell. This is so true. And mm -hmm. um, I would love to dive a little more deeper into how how do you go about that? Like, what would be the best way to stay in touch other than just saying, you know, once in a while, like, do you use any tools or techniques to make sure like over time, like you have been around for so many years, I'm assuming you have plenty of clients to stay in touch with. Do you have an account management team? Do you do that relationship management yourself? Do you use a CRM? How, how do you actually make sure that you are, connected to everybody like one is of course we have linkedin where you can stay active and you know keep posting and stay connected with them but i'm assuming that you need to do more than just linkedin because you know who knows who is you know yeah. give us the inside the inside yeah. tip outside of emails <laughs> um yes yeah, so i'm going to hold up a return holiday card here this this uh, came back to me because the address was wrong but every every year i send out a physical holiday card to 300 past clients or contacts. Nice. Um, wow. I write personal notes in each one. Um, we do the address research on LinkedIn because people move companies. And so when I say I market to people, not companies, I mean, you know, this person moved from this company to the next company. They still got a holiday card from me at the new company, like, you know, in their, at their desk, you know, physically in person. And so we try to do a fun holiday card. I come up with something custom. I 
I sometimes include like our awards in there. Um, our website is always updated at that time to make sure like our latest work is up there. So if they want to check it out, I include a Starbucks card and they can go and get a coffee on us. Um, and then I, I also just occasionally drop in on people and say, hey, what's up? Let's schedule a call or let's meet up. Let's go grab coffee. I mean, social, like I genuinely love people. I, I like staying in touch with people. I find it to be very rewarding. So I just sometimes drop in and like, Hey, what's going on? Like what's happening with your child or your, your latest project? Or, you know, I just, I just like to talk about general things and not necessarily just about work, you know, and I tend to um, hear from people that, that our studio takes on more of a partner role than a vendor role. So we, we do develop those close relationships during the time we're working on the project. And so then they tend to like to keep us informed about like how it went, like how the launch went. And, and we also like for people that don't have an in-house team, we handle maintenance. And so I think that connection, I mean, every month we're doing something like, yeah. what do you want us to work on next month? Like, do we stay within this certain budget? Like, do we take on new features? And if it's a big feature push, we'll plan out a separate estimate for that. But I mean, I have to say that, you know, clients I worked for, 10 years ago, I mean, I could still call up and be like, hey, what's up? Did you get our card? I mean, because I'm still in touch like every year, at least one time, right? So that's amazing. I think it's it's never underestimating the power of your network in a lot of ways and not necessarily right. using that network for, for networking, but also the relationship piece of it. You said something that was interesting. It's, um, and I actually am, am uh, a a culprit of this. Like I use the word partner and vendor interchangeably and I probably shouldn't because mm-hmm. um, you said partner, we're a partner, not a vendor. And that's a really interesting distinction in terms of how you think about that. You know, a vendor is somebody supplying you with goods and services in some ways, right. whereas a partner is literally somebody who's involved in your business. I mean, would you say, how would you define it? I feel like mine wasn't that I mean- eloquent. I think a partner is someone who's personally invested in the success of the brand and the project to the point where you operate as if you're a business owner. You operate and make decisions and give advice as if it's your company to run and your company to launch. And, you know, if you feel like invested, personally invested in the success of the project, you make different decisions. It's just a fact. Like you look for ways to streamline features that are maybe rudimentary. You look for ways to escalate features that are interesting. You look for ways to save money where you can, spend money where you should, advise them on connections they could make. I mean, one example is um, we're launching a project soon, which is like a networking platform for the trades. It's a hiring platform for the trades called Real Work. And specifically, they are, they're trying to bring a better platform to the trades because, for example, LinkedIn doesn't even have a place to put your licenses and certifications that are required to um, hire people and have them on a job site. I mean, you can have an insurance problem if you have people on a job site if they don't have a certain license or certification. So, For example, um, I pulled people out of my personal network in the Bellevue School District to connect them with this project because they're trying to let high school kids know that the trades are a viable pathway for careers. So I got us a meeting with the local school district to talk to the CTE director. You know, I set up a meeting with, um, like we go and ski in North Central Washington and I happen to know my neighbor over there is like a 
um, superintendent of the school district in that. And sure. so he's he's connecting us with that CTE instructor as well. So when you operate as a partner, you look for ways to not only build out the physical digital product, you look for ways to help the business succeed. You make connections, you know, so. When you're, it, it's, and I agree, like that makes perfectly, it's, it's having that vested interest and in success of who you're working with in a lot of ways, regardless of, you know, the outcome. Mm -hmm. Well, you want the outcome to be positive. Um, how do you, as a partner in those instances, deal with when there might be a difference of opinion? is you know is it there a lot of times as in and do you how do you how do you navigate that because I feel like that sometimes is a challenge for agency owners or participants you know in projects they're like well we think that's a terrible idea you're not going to say that but you are going to say it you know do you have any tips or tricks or insights on as what works well for you in those circumstances I guess it depends on the context how I would answer that question um I think if you're talking about a product feature that I think is a horrible idea, then I need something to back it up. So user research is the answer to that. Uh, get it in front of some people, do an A-B test, you know, map it out one way and the other and see which one is better. And you might be wrong. <laughs> Your opinion might be wrong. You might be right too. And if you have something to back it up, then that's a good way to convince your client. Um, ultimately, yeah. like the client's paying the bills, it's the client's company. So ultimately, you know, if you have a difference of opinion, they're the one who's ultimately going to probably win in that situation. However, if you have a good relationship and they trust your expertise, what they're paying you for is your knowledge in this area, right? So if, if it's an area where you're talking about a product decision, for example, um, making a user profile public by default as opposed to private, you know, let's say the setting is turn it on to make it public versus turn it off to make it turn it on to make it private versus public. Okay. Let's say it rolls out public and they have to turn it off to make it private versus the other way. Um, the client's going to want it public because they want as much stuff out there as possible. Let's say this is for kids. Should a profile be public for kids? I would argue no. This has really happened to me. Um, you know, and so we went back and forth through like a bunch of conversations. We got it in front of parents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm, for those listening, I'm making like a shocked face. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this, like this type of thing where the business, the business has a direction and you have a direction, the best you can do is bring evidence that the decision may not be right. Um, and that might come in the form of user interviews. It might come in the form of research. Ultimately, you have to bring it to your client and have them make the decision. If it's like a moral problem or you have an issue with it, I mean, you always have the option to walk away from an engagement if it's not working and that absolutely can happen. Um, so it, it's your it's part of your job to navigate those situations. And I think that applies to almost any situation in, in life in general, because I mean, I say life, mm -hmm. but I mean, in professional, I think I recently, because it, it, it just occurred to me because it happened very recently with my, with me and my internal team. And I was talking to my sales lead and we were talking about, you know, we had to buy, you know, for the sales strategies, we need to buy a list. We need to subscription off a platform, which is super expensive. Like 
and we need approvals for that. And she was like, we need to, to make take approvals from the other partners, but I don't know if I, you know, it, it is going to be very, you know, it, it may not be accepted. And I said, you know, it doesn't matter if, and, and more than exception, it is like, you know, if it is going to succeed or not, if this decision that we'll make, it will bring us the results that we want. But at that point, the, the idea is like, it doesn't matter if the decision is going to be right or not. The evidence that we have so far, like we have tried all these things that has not worked and we have heard and we have seen the research that this platform has brought enough results. So based on that information and data, this is the best decision we can make at this point. So to your point, like evidence-based decision is the way when you don't have certainty and you will never have certainty what the future will have. Like how will this decision you know, carve out? Who knows? But at least for now, this is the best we can do. So decision has to be made. We, we, you know, you make it or somebody else makes it, um, and who, you know, whatever happens next, who knows? But um, there has to be we move forward. So that's a, that's a good point. I want to pivot our conversation a little bit because um, I know you do a lot of work as a female founder and advocacy around female founders, um, and. I'd love to hear some tips as a as a female founder that you may have as people who it's I don't even I feel like it's a lot more accepted than it's been in the past, but I know it's something that is is a platform of yours. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your thoughts and you know those females or others who identify as something other than male um, thoughts that you have around that or tips that you may have to share. Sorry, Varun. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. I'm asking. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I happen to be a woman who founded a studio. I um I've gotten a lot of attention for this in the last 10 years um because it kind of became more of a hot topic in the community in general. Um I did speak at Stanford a few years ago about women in entrepreneurship and starting a business in tech. And I actually worked on a platform called Geek Girl Careers, which was all about finding your way in, in the tech world as a woman. Um, I think, you know, the biggest thing to keep in mind is uh, focusing on the work and the outcomes and just putting in the time and effort and not necessarily worrying too much about are you male, are you female, are you purple, are you are you white? Who cares? I mean, it's honestly, it just comes down to like doing the best work. And I guess if people find me and they want to hire me because I am a female business owner, I will absolutely support that. Um, I do support other women. I hire women whenever I can, uh, for sure. Like in our, in our team, we have, you know, a pretty good mix of men and women on the team. Um, and I think it's great to see women pursuing these professions that were traditionally male, um, there is a lot of room for women in tech for sure, especially, you know, just that intuitive sense. I think like the intuitive sense of what people need and that caregiving sense that women have, that's like so, um, instrumental to our role in general as, you know, caregivers and mothers. Um, I think it, it translates well to the workplace, especially when you're looking to, um, develop tools for humans and develop tools that are easy to use and that communicate well with people. And so just that intuitive female sense of, you know, what's right, what's wrong, like what works, what doesn't. Um, and then that just persistent drive and organization and like 
hitting it hard and like putting in the work and like being just really fierce. I mean, that's a trait I see in the women I hire and the women I collaborate with. And, you know, men are very, very talented as well. I mean, I have a lot of men on my team and I, you know, I, I support people who are talented and who put in the work. I think, you know, gender really shouldn't matter. And I think we're in a place now finally where I feel like it's not as much of a factor as it was for our parents. And I think our daughters are gonna have a much better time um, just working in this industry and industries in general. Um, I think it's it's much less of a factor than it was like even one generation back, so. Uh, I feel like we could do a whole nother podcast on that. <laughs> yeah, if we, we had time, I, I do want to ask you about um, as a leader. So you, you talked about you giving a talk at Stanford. Where, where else do you spend your time? Where else do you hang out to as, as a leader, um, you know, as a, as a business owner, where do you, you know, build your, you know, or connect with your peer, other business owners, and you mm-hmm. know, talk about business stuff. You know, Is so any, I, yeah, yeah. I so I did a program through Stanford called Stanford Lead. It's a executive education program that's online, and you can actually um, take classes. It's a one year um, postgraduate program. It's a business certificate, kind of like an MBA, but just less work, right? So. I did that. Um, I did that and finished it last year, and it's it's just a great way to kind of refresh your thinking. And um, I found that I got a lot of interesting ideas and contacts from that program. I also have like a large client network, and within that network, I have business owners that I work for or collaborate with that I value and trust. And so I've actually um, reached out and set up conversations just to brainstorm and I've actually been able to develop sort of like a mentorship or a menteeship relationship with some of those people so people who are more senior to me that have been in venture capital or entrepreneurship or they run an agency or even just a consulting firm um, I have a network of three or four people that I really trust that I ask questions of and I think having mentors is, is a really great way to develop your personal growth and not necessarily have to be in school right it's like it's like the way that adults learn from each other and and we share ideas and stuff um i don't really know where to suggest developing those relationships um i used to go to like in-person business networking events or venture capital meetups um things like that um aiga in san francisco i did for many years um there's there's plenty of groups and and it's not a bad way to just get yourself out there. I mean, I think traditional business cards are probably not a thing anymore for the most part, but I mean- You would see that just... the people who do some creative stuff with the business card. There was a fellow- <laughs> I mean, I still to, have some, but- There was a, um, we talked to earlier who did like a really, they were like little puzzles that he would build for his, you know, it was somebody- one oh, of Okay, that's yeah, cool. Yeah, it was cool. Chocolate stuff. Yeah. Like that, Yeah, I think just don't be afraid to get out and talk to people. I mean, it's um, people are generally honored when you ask if they would be willing to mentor you, you know, um, different topics. So, yeah. Well, this has been interesting conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. I have one one last question. What's exciting you about the future? What are you looking forward to? 
Well, I'm looking forward to growing our team. We're adding a second engineering channel so we can take on more projects. Um, we're building more mobile apps and just, you know, trying to expand our network of like really qualified providers so we can offer, you know, enhanced services. So looking forward to that future where we, we don't feel like we have as many limits of what we can do, so. Sounds great. Well, thanks so much. Where folks can find you is on your website. So we've got uh, theflowerpress.net, if I'm not mistaken, and the LinkedIn and all the social media and Clutch. I think you mentioned that earlier as well. So Correct. thank you so much. That's it, everyone. So if you learned something today or laughed, please tell somebody about the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Find our other episodes on agencies.build.com. Plus we're listed anywhere you find your favorite podcast.